Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listeners. Jonathan here. Today's episode Becoming a Clinical Social Worker. About 80 to 85% of students that enter MSW programs have the goal of being direct practice clinical social workers. They want to work with people at the micro level. They want to do individual therapy, family therapy, couple therapy, group therapy. But one of the things about MSW programs is that, for the most part, they're advanced generalist programs, meaning we want social workers to graduate with their MSW to be able to understand and work within multiple systems at multiple levels. So if you want to be a clinical social worker and you're graduating from an advanced generalist program, you're not going to have all of the skills and knowledge that you need to just jump right in and be an advanced clinical social worker. So how do you get there? Well, I'm very excited about today's guest, Dr. Dana Bodenheimer. She recently published a book through New Social Worker Press called Real World Clinical Social Work. Find your voice and find your way. Dana is the perfect person to write this book. She received her MSW from Smith College and her doctorate in social work from the University of Pennsylvania. She's a highly sought after educator who's taught at Rutgers, Temple University, Bryn Mawr, and the University of Pennsylvania, where she won the 2012 Award for Excellence in Teaching. She maintains a private practice in Philadelphia, and she recently started and is the head of the Walnut Psychotherapy Center, a trauma-informed outpatient setting that specializes in the treatment of LGBTQ patients. I've known Dana since 2008. We met when I moved to Philadelphia, and our kids were the same age. They were little, and... My wife is a nurse practitioner, and Dana's wife's a nurse practitioner, and Dana and I are both educators and social workers. And so we lived in the same neighborhood, and we talked about a lot of things having to do with clinical social work and what it means to be a therapist and a social worker. And so I was really excited when I heard that she was writing this book for Linda Grobman's New Social Worker Press. In fact, I wrote a little blurb for the back of the book. Dana acknowledges me in her acknowledgement section. And I'm just telling you that so that there's full disclosure here. But it's not just because I know Dana personally. Dana thinks about clinical social work very intensely. She has thought through, both because of her studies and because of the intensive supervision that she's done, what it means to be in a clinical relationship. And so in today's interview, I was very excited to talk with her about what makes a social worker a clinical social worker, what distinguishes a good social worker from a bad social worker. We talk about the one essential thing that all social workers need to bring to supervision in order to be better clinical social workers. And Dana's training is in psychodynamic psychotherapy. So she talks about the role of narcissism, the observing ego, transference, counter-transference, and the real relationship in clinical social work. But don't think that Dana's all wrapped up in a bunch of uh, abstract terms and isn't grounded in the real world. 
because we end our discussion talking about money and the kinds of things that social workers need to be thinking about when they graduate in order to be financially stable enough in their positions so that they can focus on providing excellent care to their clients. So if you like what Dana says today, and you like how she says it, please consider going to the new social worker website or amazon.com, or you can go to socialworkpodcast.com, and there will be links to her book, Real World Clinical Social Work, Find Your Voice and Find Your Way. And now, without further ado, on to episode 99 of the Social Work Podcast, Becoming a Clinical Social Worker, an interview with Dr. Dana Bodenheimer. Dana, thanks so much for being here on the Social Work Podcast, talking with us about clinical social work. So you've gone through your MSW program, you're doing the clinical track, and you graduate, and you're a master social worker, but it doesn't mean that you've mastered social work. So, so what else do new graduates need? I would say somewhere towards the beginning of the second semester of people's second year, they start freaking out about how they're going to be a good clinical social worker. And I would say that the remainder of that semester is spent feeling so anxious that the actual integration of the theory gets to be almost impossible. And they're also um, weighed down by the stress of the licensing exam and finding a job and figuring out how they're going to pay their loans. So spending time on figuring out how to become a clinical social worker gets pushed to the side in honor of these other stressors. And my hope is to figure out a way that we can really honor the process of actualizing the clinical social work identity. And for me, that takes several steps that are quite complicated in terms of one's internal search for what they believe in, what they believe makes people well, and what they believe makes people unwell. People's internal search for what theory actually works and clicks for them, not just what their favorite professor said, or what is most recently the most evidence-based practice. And also people doing an internal search for how much money they need to make. Um, People students who are about to graduate are sure they need a job, of course, and it often blinds them to really identifying their sense of worth in the field and how much money they need to make to do work that will allow them to actualize their beliefs about how to make people better. So when you say actualize, what are you talking about? I'm talking about... um, My really clear feeling that I've gotten from students that they spend a good amount of time in internship with a false sense of self, meaning that they vacillate between feeling either totally awesome at being a clinical social worker or feeling like they're totally awful at it. And they vacillate between these two self-states, I would say, multiple times a day during almost every session they have. And what I mean by actualization is a sense of humility and confidence. that co-occur because you have a real sense of what you think works and helps. And so you see this kind of integration. Is that a good way of saying it, of sort of integrating the part of you that feels unsure with the part of you that feels sure? Uh, Right. I mean, I'm talking about proceeding with a sort of solid sense of not knowing and knowing at the same time. Right. And And that that's something that is a hallmark 
of a clinical social worker. Yes, that's the hallmark of a clinical social worker. I think what becomes problematic for new, newly graduating social workers is that they feel that the not knowing means that they're horrible and that the knowing can become an overconfidence that becomes an orthodoxy around a practice orientation that doesn't often help to meet their clients where they're at. So holding those two things at the same time is is not an indicator that you're a, a bad social worker. Well, I mean, I think the idea of a bad social worker is an interesting idea. Oh. Um, say, say more about that. Okay, well, first of all, I want to put out there that I think that there are bad social workers. Yes. Um, and what I would like to do is to help people to not feel like they're universally bad and for them to also not feel like they're universally good, but that they make mistakes that help in their evolution. In my estimation, a bad social worker is one who is too anxious about their capacity to do this well to actually be with a client. So, so one of the hallmarks of a bad social worker or a social worker who is doing clinical social work poorly is that they're not actually present with their client. And maybe they're not present because they're so anxious about what they're doing. Right. I mean, to me, a bad social worker, I guess, is one who is sitting with a client um, in the hopes of self-servicing their narcissistic need. That sounds pretty bad. Yeah, that is really bad. And it actually happens all the time because we all have narcissistic needs. And part of my wish in working with students and new graduates and any supervisees is to normalize the presence of having narcissistic needs when sitting with clients and to also put those needs in their place so that they don't dominate the treatment. So I think that somebody has a narcissistic need and they automatically feel like, oh my God, I'm bad. I'm in this for the wrong reasons. And my hope is for them to feel like, oh my God, this is like something I really need to pay attention to. This is something I need to work out in supervision. This is not something that if I'm too ashamed of to work out in supervision is going to get better. And are you using the term narcissistic need as a, a bad thing? Like inherently, like a narcissistic need is, is something we shouldn't have? Or are you using it um, more globally? Like neither good nor bad? I'm using it as neither good nor bad, but becomes bad when left unchecked. So one of the prescriptions for addressing this narcissistic need is supervision. Right. Right. So what should new social workers, what should clinical social workers know about supervision? How should they use it? Like, wh what advice do you have? Okay, so I think that this is a really complicated question because, one, moving from the role of supervisee student to supervisee professional is a really complicated shift. And part of the reason students don't make great use of supervision is because they want to be great students. So they don't necessarily want to tell their supervisors everything that they're thinking and everything that they're getting wrong. And then they quickly move into the field and their supervisors are their boss. And they don't want to tell their supervisors everything that they're thinking or possibly doing wrong because it's their boss. And therefore, nobody is really getting the time to developmentally make use of supervision in the way it's needed. Because they need, to, they need to be honest about what they're either not doing well or what's not going well in order to address that. But there's the fear, I don't want to look incompetent. There's the fear of not wanting to look incompetent. There's the fear of not wanting to look narcissistic. There's the fear, most predominantly, of not wanting to look unprofessional. And there is a huge fear of not wanting to look unprofessional. And basically, I would categorize 
a huge amount of social workers um, who start to develop very personal feelings for their clients as the ones who don't want to look unprofessional and therefore don't use supervision. And the reason why this is so problematic is because these are the people who need to be making supervision, be using supervision the most. Okay, so there are two things that you mentioned. So personal feelings. Can you clarify what you mean by personal feelings? I mean, um, and I mean to normalize this very intentionally, when we form strong attachments to our clients, when we dream about our clients, when we sit at the dinner table and we want to talk about our clients with our families, and when we feel like some of the most important people in our lives are our clients. Okay, those are those uh, experiences and relationships that our code of ethics, the social work code of ethics, really draws some very fine lines around. But it sounds like you're saying it's maybe not as sort of black and white as our code of ethics is uh, suggesting in terms of like, that is your client, and when you leave the office, your client stays at the office. Okay, so what I'm saying is that our brain literally does not have compartments. And the idea... (laughs) that the NASW Code of Ethics puts forth is that somehow we have that capacity and somehow two years of school develop that capacity for us. Mm. And the first week, maybe two of most practice classes are spent on the Code of Ethics and then we're done. And what we basically mean by Code of Ethics when we talk about it in class is that we tell students not to self-disclose. And it becomes distilled down to that level of simplicity, when in reality, our relationships with our clients are far more complicated, dualistic, Um, and haunting in ways that might defy the code of ethics but really speak to our humanity, which is something we shouldn't be ashamed of because it's what makes us social workers. So, Dana, um, can I put you on the spot for a second? Sure. Is there something that you remember from when you were first starting out, an experience you had working with somebody where you didn't want to share with your supervisor I think I'm not doing well. Okay, so I want to I want to answer that question by not necessarily looking back because I don't want anybody to have the impression that you evolve beyond the feeling that you're not doing well. I mean, I feel like I have been practicing since 2005. I can't even count how many clients I've seen, and I feel at some point during every day that I'm not doing well. So I just want to put that out there. I think that's actually great. Okay. Yeah, totally. That's a very helpful reframe. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of things I haven't wanted to tell my supervisor, I will go on to say that daily I have encounters with my with my clients that make me feel like I'm going to edit this for my supervisor in this way. And then ultimately when I go to supervision, I tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth because I have my license now. I'm not doing it for the hours and I'm paying her. So that's a huge advantage. Um If the power dynamic were set up differently, it might feel really different. But to answer Jonathan's question about things I didn't do well or things that I want to keep from my supervisor, I was particularly haunted by a dream when I started of putting uh, matching onesies on my 30-year-old client with my newborn son. And I felt really ashamed of that. Um, And I would say that that was probably eight years ago that I had that dream, and I still feel ashamed about it. But more recently, this past weekend, there was a party I didn't go to, and then there was a lot of pictures of the party put on Facebook, and then I felt like I wasn't invited to the party, and I had no friends. And I thought to myself, well, I have my clients. They want to see me. They want to hang out with me. And I, you know, had to police that 
in a certain way that I wouldn't say was born out of my super ego. It wasn't just like, this is bad that you think it. It was sort of like, you know what, let's really look at that. Let's really look at this moment in your life. You're feeling lonely in it. And how you might be using your clients to service that loneliness. That's something that needs to be dealt with. And if it's not dealt with, I become a bad social worker. I am not a bad social worker because the idea and thought came to my mind. If I let it infiltrate the treatment I do, it becomes very dangerous. I appreciate your honesty about that. One of the things that I remember from my early days of learning about therapy, I learned from... um, the book, The Family Crucible, Mm -hmm. Gus Napier and Carl Whitaker. And one of the things in the book was um, Gus writes about a family that comes in and he had the thought that the teenage daughter was attractive. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading this thinking, this guy's awful. And my instructor was like, we think people are attractive all the time. Right. This is, this is human. And what you're seeing is he is acknowledging his humanity mm-hmm. as not being something that he has to hide in order to be a good therapist, but actually something he has to embrace. And what I heard you saying is I have thoughts that maybe if I were constructing what somebody thinks of as the ideal clinician, right. I wouldn't have those. But you know what? I do. Right. And that... The not acknowledging them is what makes you bad. Right. Not having them. To me, the ideal clinician is the one who does a repetitive, scathing inventory of their internal world. And if you're not doing that, your thoughts become interventions that don't service your client. If you are doing that, these can be places of growth. So another example, I don't know if this is helpful or not, um, I have a client who identifies as a gay male. I identify as a lesbian. We've been working together for maybe eight or nine years. And we had a session where he said to me, sometimes I feel like you like me, like you like like me. And he said, and I know that that's crazy because I know that you're gay and I'm gay and it's weird, but sometimes I just feel like you like like me. I immediately felt horribly ashamed and was like, do I like like him? And what does this mean about my identity? And how do I really, really feel about him? And I realized that the way I really feel about this client is that, and this is sort of a provocative thing to say, he's a male client. He is one of the first men in my life I've really loved. And he made me realize when I was pregnant with a son that I could love a son. But I had never really brought that level of attachment into the room in a way that was particularly productive. And he ended up, I think, receiving the intensity of this attachment in a way that was sort of toxic and made him feel like there was this gaze upon him that led him to feel unsafe. And I'm not sure that I can say to you what would have been the proper intervention given that I feel like this kid could have been my son. Um, I don't have the answer to that. But I do know that I didn't really deal with my feelings of loving him in supervision properly, and that he ended up experiencing it in a certain way that felt destructive to him because of that. And it speaks to the quality of your relationship that he was able and willing to bring it up. Right. So that you could then address it. Right. So to me, the hallmark of clinical social work, no matter what domain you're in, if it's a hospital setting, if it's a school setting, if it's a private practice, is that you're working with your clients to let them say what feels unsayable. 
straight up. And if you're not providing that space, then I don't believe that they're creating a sense of freedom in their own mind that they can dwell in their own mind in a way that feels safe and comfortable, which is ultimately what we're trying to get people to do, dwell safely within the confines of their mind. So for me, one of the tenets of good clinical social work is to provide a space where the unsayable becomes sayable, which means that they get to say things to you that are scary, which means that good clinical social work, in my mind, requires that we invite our clients to do that in ways that might wound us. This is not something that I feel like we talk about in school. And I would say that one of the main reasons we don't do that is because we start off talking about the code of ethics in a way that's so reductive that we're sort of like, don't get into anything that's messy. And what that ends up doing is keeping the unsayable unsayable. And I think what we need to do is start to trust our students and new graduates and social workers to deal with messiness in a way that's ethical rather than hoping that it just goes away. So trust is one of the ways that we can do this. And and being honest in supervision is another way that we can do this. What are some other ways that new social workers are able to take care of themselves, know themselves, be true to themselves so that they can be there for their clients in the way that you've been talking? Okay. So one of the things that I think people would be surprised about about me because I do sort of talk about the clinical relationship in ways that are somewhat provocative. But the way that I feel like I'm able to do that is because of an implicit and total faith in the frame of the relationship. Whatever the frame may be, if it's a hospital setting, it's that you meet in this room for 15 minutes. If it's a school setting, it's that you meet for 30 minutes during social studies class. I don't care what it is. I believe that the sanctity of the frame allows us to enter territories that are otherwise terrifying. And without the safety of the frame, I believe that this work collapses. I do not believe that that frame needs to be something that is held only internally. I think we have the external frame to allow for internal freedom and intimacy to occur. Can you unpack that idea of internal versus external a little bit? Okay, sure. So we have the external frame. Let's say, for example, my external frame is that I meet clients at 1429 Walnut Street, and I meet them for 50 minutes, and I sit in this chair, and they sit in that chair, and that is the frame. They don't get up from that chair. I don't get up from this chair. That's the external frame. What the external frame allows me to do is feel everything and anything that I feel. What the internal frame also allows me to do is have this wide range of internal exploration before creating interventions. Interventions are something that I think good clinical social workers take a lot of time to develop. So I would say for every 10,000 thoughts I have, I have one or two interventions. And I think that what's really important is for clinical social workers to know that they should be able to have the internal space to create multiple ideas about what they're going to do before they do anything at all. One thing that I like to tell students that I think frees them up a lot in clinical social work is that a clinical social work conversation is not one that's typically reciprocal. It's not like Jonathan interviewing me right now. Jonathan asks a question, I answer it, then he asks another question. We have the structure of the conversation. The clinical social work conversation can be anything. It can be alinear, it can be silent. Somebody can ask a question and there doesn't have to be an answer. And I think that given that, this conversation doesn't have to go in any sort of traditional way. We get to think a lot of things before saying a lot of things. 
And it sounds like the things that you're thinking about have to do with the relationship. And that's not a linear thing. Right. So the things I'm thinking about are basically a trifecta of transference, countertransference, and the real relationship. I feel like these three things co-occur all the time. I don't believe that transference and countertransference trump the presence of a real relationship, and I don't believe that there being a real relationship means that there's not transference and countertransference. Transference is basically every single thing that the client is bringing in that they feel about you that is informed by other aspects of their life. Countertransference is all of the responses invoked in the clinician by the client that have to do with other aspects of their life. And also um, things in their life that are happening in the room at that moment. So for example, I consider countertransference to be when I get tired, when I get bored. When I wake up in the morning and I'm deciding what to wear, I'm getting dressed for my two o'clock session. I consider that to all be countertransference. There's also just the fact that there's me and client Beth sitting together, and we're two re- real people who have come to know each other who are commenting on the weather. And I would not say that that's particularly transferential. So I'm sitting with a client sort of in the swirl of analysis between transference, countertransference, and the real stuff that's happening. And in that swirl, as I'm sort of observing that swirl, I'm like, what here is of the most terrific import to share? And and actually, is it worth sharing anything at all? Because before sharing anything, I'm not sure that anything needs to be said. And so when you're thinking about what to say or what to do, you're understanding um, the dynamics. Is this transferential? Is this countertransferential? Is this sort of the real relationship? Um, and then you make your decision based on whatever it is that you're figuring out is in the moment going on, right? Yes. It's sort of like, well, I want to say two things. Some interventions are carefully calculated and concocted um, after deep critical analysis and thought, and some are spontaneous. And I don't want to give listeners the sense that every intervention is a perfectly constructed one. Wynton Marsalis once said something about playing jazz that I love and I think is totally applicable to therapy. He said, in jazz... The note doesn't matter. It's the note and the note that follows it Mm -hmm. that matters. Right. I think that that's really true in clinical work. I think one thing we forget when we do interventions and we're terrified about how the intervention went is that we have the client to ask. So I'm going to say to a client, you know, I'm going to just take a chance and say, it sounds to me like you and your partner aren't happy. And then I'm terrified that I said it. And I can do one of two things, deal internally with my terror and internally with it only. Or I can say, how does it feel that I just said that? And one of the things that's so beautiful about the alinear and sort of um, not carefully constructed nature of the social work conversation is that it allows for a huge amount of transparency. We can say what we've said, and then we can talk about what we've just said, and then we can talk about it again. And this is what makes the social work conversation different than other conversations. Social work graduates and students are always like, well, what makes this therapy? What makes this clinical social work? How is that different than any other conversations I'm having? my answer to that question is almost uniformly the presence of transparency and the presence of the awareness that the content that we're talking about is important but secondary to our awareness of the process. So your client can talk, can come in and say, I had a client come in and say this week, 
yelling, screaming about how she just got three mosquito bites on the way in. And we could spend the whole session just talking about the mosquito bites and that that would not be a clinical conversation. I'm not saying that that could never be a clinical conversation. But what we really need to talk about is the process by which she's coming and talking about this. Why is she talking about it so intensely? Why is she telling me it? Why this morning was that particularly wounding? We need to create for our clients and for ourselves as clinical social workers the presence of an observing ego, meaning like, let's look at this conversation and talk about why this conversation is happening the way it's happening. And the reason we need to do that is because I, I firmly believe that adulthood, the measure of adulthood, is in some ways the presence of an observing ego. So I, I can't read the minds of the people listening. Right. But I would suspect that there is equal part um, bliss and joy hearing you talk about sort of this deeply profound insight you have and relationship that you have with your clients. And also equal part of, yes, but how do I get there? Yes. So how does one go from being a new social worker to an advanced clinical social worker? Um, Other than buying your book. Okay. Well, you have to buy my book. And then, and then it's there. It's just all there. Um, but you actually don't have to buy my book. Um, the way that somebody becomes an advanced clinical social worker, and I will not deny that I'm an advanced clinical social worker, and I also won't deny that I know that when I talk about my cases, other people get anxious because they think, why are her cases so deep and my case is not that deep? And I can tell you, one, that on a daily basis, my cases don't feel this deep. This is only the narrative of a composite sketch. So I spend a lot of time talking about I, I, I said to my class the other week that sometimes I'll go through Tinder with my clients and we swipe through who's cute and not cute. And, and the, Tinder the dating app. Tinder yeah. the dating app. Um, Tinder, okay, Cupid. I look at their profiles with them. How does this picture look? How does that picture look? What do you think of this guy? And it the minutiae is that real. And part of the reason I'll do that is because I believe that attending to that leads to the depth I'm talking about. And I don't think that you ever get to a deep place by trying to get to a deep place. And and I think that what Jonathan is asking about trusting the process is that to trust a process is to really know that you don't know how you get to where you're going. And the truth is, I really don't know how I get to where I'm going. And there's many early sessions I sit in where I'm like, where is this going? What's going to happen? Are we ever going to form a connection? Am I ever not going to be bored? Is this ever going to feel interesting? Or is this person ever going to change? And I say to myself, you don't know yet. You just don't know yet. But what I do know is that I believe in clinical social work. And I'm not saying that, like, it's a deity or it's my God, but I sort of feel like in order to really do this work well, you need to have a strong belief in the transformative potential of it in a way that's almost like it's a higher power. You have to realize people have been doing this before you, people are going to do this after you, and that people have long gotten well because of it. I believe that Freud called this the talking cure. Freud also said that the two main things that he needed to achieve with his clients was for them to develop the capacity to love and to work. He never talked about the capacity for happiness. I don't subscribe to the capacity for happiness. I think it's nonsense. Life is too complicated for that. But if we can get our clients to a place where they can love and work, I think that we've done our work. 
And that work could be anything. It could be staying at home. It could be blogging. It could be weeding. I don't know what it's going to be, but for them, it has to feel like work. To me, I am not sure what else could get somebody there but talking. And what, why I believe that is because what differentiates humans from everybody else is talking. That's what we have. We have language. And I believe in language. I believe in the precision of language. And I believe that the more precise that more precisely that language is used, the more likely wellness is to occur. So can you can you just summarize for us what folks need to do or what you think is is helpful in doing to become a clinical social worker? Okay. So for me, I have a very clear belief in there being a deep connection between trauma, development, and attachment. That's what I think about all day, every day. Trauma, development, attachment. Those are my three things. They're just my three things. I believe that every clinician needs to have some sort of guiding principle that moves them through their work, some sort of things that they are keeping track of that lead them to feel like they're forming enough of a case conceptualization that will help them create interventions that will help their client. So I'm sharing my three guiding principles. I'm not sharing them so that you use them. I'm sharing them because I think that to do this work without a belief system is to sort of like, what do you do when you jump out of a plane? What's that called? Parachute. Plane jumping? Sky di- skydiving. Skydiving. Okay. okay. <laughs> I think it's like skydiving without a parachute. My my feeling is if until you identify your beliefs about what creates wellness and unwellness, you're jumping out of a plane without a parachute. The thing is you might not know what you believe and that is what you need to be using supervision for. I think that we have a tremendous amount of focus on evidence-based practice. I don't think that evidence-based practice can be replaced by the clinical wisdom that's offered by our forefathers and mothers in this field that are given to us. Our forefathers and our foremothers are delivered to us in the form of supervision. And supervision is what will lead you to your beliefs. And if you approach supervision in a way that you're fearful, you won't develop a a belief system that will be able to guide you. And most importantly, Jonathan almost took the microphone away. You need to find a way to get paid. And the reason why I say that um, is, one, because I believe social workers can get paid. And I believe that if you do this work in a way where you're freaking out about money all day, every day, you won't be able to think straight. And that is a lesson about yourself, and it's a lesson about your clients, because financial strife creates the inability to think critically. And my hope is that you can create some sort of number for yourself that you can live on that gives you the psychological space to be able to develop an internal practice that you're comfortable with. It's like the idea that, you know, my ideal salary is enough so that I don't have to think about what my salary is. Right. And I think that that is a little bit like an ideal that you can't quite get to when you start. (laughs) But I mean, I don't want the field to kill you, which it can, because there are salaries that will, in a way that will keep you from being able to think and feel clearly. Well, Dana, we could talk for like another 100 hours. Um, Thank you so much for talking to us today about clinical social work. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.